Alrighty, I just want to introduce us here with this sermon. As Glenn already said, we're going to be going through the book of Ruth. Uh, but just by way of introduction, I want to give you guys a little glimpse into um, the life of a homiletic student. Uh, we are a class of six of us guys. We've been going through uh, different sermon series. We started out going through and handling epistolary literature where we got to go through Romans. Um, then we got to go through uh, the hymnic where we touched base on many psalms. Um, the songs that God has given his people to sing, uh, both in times of joy and sorrow. Uh, and lastly, at the beginning of this semester, we got to go through what is the narrative portion of scripture, um, hence why we are going to be in the book of Ruth. But as I was dwelling on just the sheer thought of God giving us story, um, it blew me away thinking on that point that in this thought in particular, that we have just as much a part to play in God's grand story as any of the characters that we love in scripture. Granted, our stories will never be recorded in God's word, but we get to play just as much of a part in God's grand story of redemption as anyone that we read about, uh, with probably the only exception being our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With that being said, um, there's one grand question that I found coming out and constantly being asked by the book of Ruth that I would just like to pose to you guys today at the outset of this message. And that is, who do you look to for redemption? Who do you look to for redemption? Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term redemption, it is the action of re regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or by clearing a debt. We heard one of these examples of redemption in Chandler's message last Tuesday with the story of Hosea and Gomer, where Hosea, the prophet of God, lived out God's reconciliation and purpose in trying to redeem Israel from their sins. We saw Hosea literally have to go to the market block to buy back his wife. Another example of the clearing of the debt aspect would be that of the Apostle Paul, where on his way toward Damascus on that road, Jesus Christ himself appeared to him and saved him from his sin, clearing that debt because of his work on the cross. And that is the very story and theme that we find in this book of Ruth. I'd like to just propose to you guys a simple outline over these four chapters that coincides with four individual words which eat with each of those chapters. Chapter one, we see the need in this narrative. Chapter two, we see a redeemer emerge. Chapter three, we see a plan. And chapter four, we see the very act of redemption. Need, redeemer, plan, and redemption. That is the book of Ruth. But before we jump in, to chapter one, we see the fact that the very first words in Ruth say that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, I know undoubtedly many of you are familiar with this period of the judges, but if you would just turn one page back in your Bibles with me, look at chapter 21, verse 25, as it describes this time that we're entering in redemptive history. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
This is a period of time where sin is both rampant, pervasive, and cherished by the people who should be loving the Lord God. Sin is rampant and cherished. So if you would open your Bibles to chapter 1, I'm going to read and begin with the first five verses of Ruth that say this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Then they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. What a way to start a story. <laughs> Absolute tragedy enters the scene. We see this man trying to lead his house in the best way that he knew, but just like that last verse from Judges, he was just doing what was right in his own eyes. There was a famine in the land, and he heard of food, provision in this foreign country of Moab. So he packed everything up and went. But upon landing there in Moab, tragedy strikes. Not only does Elimelech die, but also his two sons leaving his wife and two daughters-in-law alone. And then after this 10-year period and seeing the dire straits, both of them in Moab, of Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, and hearing that there's food again in their hometown of Bethlehem, Naomi decides that it's time to pack up and return home. It's at this point, we'll pick the narrative right back up at verse 8, which says this. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go and return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you may find rest, each one of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And even if I should say I have hope and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, 
do not urge me to leave from you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she saw, she said no more. This is simultaneously one of the most beautiful and, again, saddening moments in all of Scripture. Naomi, from her lens, sees only that God has rejected her, turned her back on her by leaving her not only without her husband, but also her sons to provide for her. And it's even at this point that she sees the hopeless state of even their returning. Even upon their arrival back in Bethlehem, it's going to be a tough, tough life. So she urges her daughters-in-law to return back, back to Moab, back to their potential husbands, back even to where their false gods were. And we see even with Naomi's insisting, it almost seems as if Naomi's resilience is what even pushes Orpah away, as Orpah's resilience breaks uh, when it comes up against Naomi's. But then there is Ruth, who holds fast, literally clings to her mother-in-law. And we see one of the greatest professions of loyalty in all of Scripture, where you go, I will go, where you die, I will die. But the most beautiful piece in that is your God will be my God. This woman who grew up an absolute adulterer, not knowing God, rejecting him, has now claimed him as her own. Now a follower of Yahweh. What a glorious picture that is. Yet, even upon their arrival in Bethlehem, uh, Naomi's fears are actually realized. When they arrive, the women of the town gather, uh, excited to see Naomi again, greet her, and yet her response is, do not any longer call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for God has dealt me many bitter blows. It is at this point that we see that first word truly emerge in the story, that of need. Need is everywhere in this first chapter, both for the physical provision um, of food, money, everything that they need physically, they're lacking. In that time and place, it was the men who provided for the women almost exclusively. And without either a husband or a son to be able to provide that, they would be relegated to gleaning and picking up the leftovers after the harvests for their food. So there's both the physical need, but then there's also a spiritual need that we see for Ruth and Naomi. They lack, Naomi especially lacks hope. She's allowing herself to focus on the physical, and that's overflowing in her attitude in so many different ways. 
And for us, we even see need come out in the bigger picture of God's grand story. If we step back, um, we remember all the way back to Genesis, where God creates everything good. And yet in chapter 3, we see both Adam and Eve rebel against God, turn away from him uh, in sin, creating the largest need that will ever be realized by anyone on this planet. Eternal separation from God, the need of reconciliation. But then to return back to Ruth, our story continues in chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1, it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was one of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged my young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It is at this point that we see the second word emerge in this story, of a redeemer. We get the first hints of it in verse 1, recognizing the fact that Boaz is a close relative of Elimelech, the husband of Naomi. This is where Ruth finds herself gleaning, just trying to scrape by to gather any food to be able to provide for them. And it is at that point that Boaz takes notice of this young woman, this foreigner gathering in the field. Ruth. He continually shows and extends grace toward her, both in allowing her not only to glean in the field, but he goes up and commends her. He gives instructions to the reapers to show her favor, even dropping bundles of grain before her. And she even 
And he even invites her to lunch with him and his servants. Further in the chapter, we're told that at the end of that day, after this vast favor that Boaz extends toward Ruth, that she went home with an ephah of separated grain. And now if you're unfamiliar with Hebrew measurements, as I was, that totals roughly 29 pounds of grain picking up off the ground and after it was beaten out. That's a lot of favor that Boaz extended to Ruth. Our story continues. We'll pick it back up again in verse 19 after uh, Ruth returns to Naomi. Verse 19 says, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you work today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you should go out with his young women, lest in another field you should be assaulted. So keep close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It is at this point that we see the reality of the Redeemer realized by both Naomi and Ruth. You heard the very joy all of a sudden click in Naomi as she heard the name of Boaz. She knows that there is now hope, a hope that we did not see in chapter 1. And we see her demeanor totally change. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this concept of the Redeemer um, or the kinsman Redeemer, it is an ordinance that God laid out in his law to be able to provide for his people when a man left a widow behind. God gave the ability for a close relative to come alongside and bear children with that woman. That way the name of the deceased could continue. If you want any other further information on that, you can see Leviticus chapters 25, 27, Numbers 5, and 35. But ultimately in chapter 2, we see now that it is in a Redeemer that Ruth and Naomi have a kindled hope. The Redeemer, it, which is the theme of chapter 2, is the solution to the need or the theme of chapter one. And the same is true for us. Let's continue in chapter three. Starting in verse one, it says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man, 
until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what you are to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So we're told at the end of chapter two that this now is the end of the barley and wheat harvests. So it's about three months since Ruth first met Boaz. And over this time, Naomi's been watching at a distance and thinking. And now emerges this plan in her mind that she tells Ruth. Upon hearing this plan, where essentially Ruth is going to instigate this ordinance of the kinsman redeemer. She's going to go to Boaz in what is basically and essentially in our modern language, Ruth proposing to Boaz. There's a lot on the line for Ruth at this point of the story. Not only does she set herself up to be rejected by Boaz, the one who it seems that she has developed a love for, as he has been continually extending grace. But if that is the case and she is rejected, it will also push her to the outskirts of society even more than she already is. It will essentially condemn her finally to this life until she passes away. With this in mind, Ruth still chooses to go. She goes and sees Boaz, threshing on the floor as evening comes. She watches him at a distance, seeing him take his meal and eventually lay down. She waits until she's sure that he is asleep and then goes up to him, uncovers his feet and lays down just as Naomi instructed him. How those minutes and hours must have drugged by as, Na or as Ruth had everything that Naomi told her about running through her mind of all the different contingency plans. And it is somewhere around midnight that we'll pick back up at verse 8. And it says, At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. How Ruth's emotions must have leapt up within her as a tide of joy comes flooding in as Boaz responds favorably to her with those words, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask. Yet as this tide comes rushing in, it leaves almost just as fast as it came in. 
as now a new tide of grief and dread comes in as Boaz tells her, now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. This has totally rocked what Ruth had in her mind of this plan, going well that she was going to be accepted by Boaz and they were going to live happily ever after. It reminds me of the proverb uh, in Proverbs 16:9 that says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Ruth's inevitable concept of what was hopefully going to happen that night just got dashed to the rocks with that simple phrase, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. It's at this point that Ruth obeys Boaz, stays with him the rest of that night, and returns back to be with Naomi. And it's at the very end of this chapter that we see the last bit of dialogue of Ruth and Naomi in this entire book. Upon Ruth's retelling everything, Naomi simply responds in verse 18 where it says, She replied, Wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will saddle settle the matter today. Wait, a word that I'm sure many of us dread hearing. It's, it's definitely not a favorite of mine, uh, but it's within this great tension that Ruth receives. This as the last word that she's going to hear in this book. Wait, how, Ruth's expectation must have continually built over the course of that day, similar to that night before Boaz responded with favor. This plan that we see coming out in Ruth 3 has not gone according to what Ruth and Naomi thought it was going to. Yet nonetheless, God has his hand in it, and it is him who is going to establish their steps. We now rejoin Boaz, as the spotlight of the stage, leaves Naomi and Ruth and reemerges on Boaz. Chapter 4, verse 1 begins saying this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. This is the figurative moment of truth. Boaz knows that everything is culminating toward this point in the Redeemer's response. And if you look again, again at the end of verse 4, and he said, I will redeem it. Now we see Boaz's emo emotions as the excitement must have continually built into him. And then he hears these words, I will redeem it by this unnamed redeemer who has rights before him. Granted, we don't know 
Scripture doesn't tell us if it was just a release of, oh, why? <laughs> or if he was really cunning and saw this coming. But all that we do know is what he said. Verse 5 says, Then Boaz said, The day you buy of the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetrate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption on yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And I'm sure at that moment, similar to Ruth, Boaz's heart must have leapt. As this good news comes across, he has been given the right to redeem Naomi and Ruth, the one who he has grown to love over these last many months. And it's with great joy now that the, this unnamed redeemer seals the contract in handing him a sandal, and Boaz takes the sandal, lifts it up for all to see, and says, I have bought to be my wife and to perpetrate the name of the dead in his inheritance, the name of the dead. He rejoices in the fact that he gets to now claim his wife. And while this joy is leaping in Boaz, we must remember also where Ruth is at. She knows nothing of what's going on. She's still in this tense and anxious moment. I don't know if she was waiting by the front door, watching the road to see who and what redeemer is going to emerge. She has no idea who her wife is going to be later that night. Yet as she waits, she sees a silhouette emerge on the horizon, and eventually Boaz's face comes into view, and they embrace and celebrate together. If you would pick up again at verse 13 of chapter 4, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in all of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. This is the glorious conclusion of this book. We see not only the need in chapter 1, the Redeemer emerge in chapter 2, the plan in chapter 3, but in chapter 4 we see the consummation of it all in the very act of redemption. Boaz takes not only Ruth as his wife and redeems her, but ultimately in these last verses, we see a greater emphasis placed on the redemption of Naomi and Boaz's taking of Ruth. Naomi, as we saw in chapter one, the one who is hopeless for redemption. She had no hope. She could not. She was too old to have a husband again. Yet it was through the act of Boaz taking Ruth that not only Ruth was redeemed, but also Naomi. 
and we see this last picture of Naomi. I have in my mind her sitting as this elderly grandma holding this grandchild in a chair, just beaming with joy as the redemption has been fulfilled, not only for her daughter-in-law, but for her as well. However, the author of this book doesn't end the story there. While this yes is the end of the narrative of Ruth and Naomi, he continues his writing. If you look at verse 18, we now finish with the genealogy, which says this. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The author of Ruth doesn't want us to just simply stop here at this story, but he calls us to lift our eyes to the greater story that God is doing. It is through the redemption of Ruth that God's going to bring about a king. This boy King David, and it's David who receives a promise that there's going to be an even greater king that's going to follow him, who will sit on a throne and rule for all of eternity. We see this theme of redemption strung out throughout all of God's word. And it's with this genealogy that I believe that we are called to beckon our eyes to that grand story. <laughs> Thinking through again, all the way back at the beginning, talking about narrative. It's blown my mind in processing this, that every single act that God does throughout history is part of this grand story of redemption. And it's with good reason then that many theologians call history redemptive history. If you think back to the validity of this, God has been acting in a redeeming way ever since Genesis 3 at the fall. God should have smite, smout Adam and Eve for their sin, and yet he doesn't. He promised that on that day they would die and yet they didn't. And it's in the midst of this immediate reaction after they have sinned that God doesn't come with a hammer, but he comes with a promise. He promises an offspring that would later come that would crush the head of the serpent. If you think a couple chapters later, we see this character of Noah emerge, who's in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, and God's going to send a flood to wipe it all out. And yet God redeems, saves Noah out of that, along with his close family. In Genesis 22, we see Abraham take his son Isaac up a mountain to sacrifice him. And yet God provides a ram to take the place of Isaac. He was redeemed. We then see a grander picture of God redeeming Israel out of slavery in the Exodus. We've already touched base on Hosea as he went and bought back his wife off the auction block. We saw Jesus tell of this redemption throughout all of his parables, uh, particularly in the parable of the prodigal son, as the father welcomes back his lost son with open arms. 
And again, we see this in the Apostle Paul, who is saved and redeemed out of his sin to declare the greatest act of redemption that has ever been seen in all of history. And that is what we are going to celebrate at the end of this week when Christ offered his life as a propitiatory sacrifice on the cross. And it is because of that action that we see in Revelation 7, a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation that had been redeemed by the Lamb, that we are a part of that end picture of this multitude that cannot be numbered. So again, I ask you, who do you look to for redemption today? Who are you trusting in? We've already seen our need because of sin. We cannot reconcile ourselves back to God. But there is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who acted on God's plan, dying in our place to take our sins so that we can participate in that description of Revelation 7, of getting to worship the Lamb for all of eternity. This theme of need, redeemer, plan, and redemption is not just in Ruth, but it is our story as well. So if you don't trust in the Lord today, I would encourage you, don't wait. Cast yourself on him, for he is a good and gracious redeemer who has extended such marvelous kindness to us. And if you're unsure of that, I would welcome you either to contact me or anyone here at this school who you know is a Christian. Don't keep this a secret, but be open about it and seek that redemption which God has already provided for us in Jesus. But for those of us who are trusting that in that redemptive work of Christ on the cross, there are three things that I'd like to leave you with as we ponder God's redemption throughout not only Ruth, but all of human history. Redemption ought to leave us in wonder of what God has done and who he is. We should be able to rest and dwell on the goodness of the gospel, that he did send his own son to redeem us when we were in so great of need that we could not reconcile us back to God. Wonder at God's plan and work of redemption. We ought to rest in that same gospel. There is assurance in what God has done because it is God himself who has done it. So let us rest in God's plan of work and work of redemption. And what should that wonder and rest do? It ought to bring about in us a joy to go and tell of God's plan and work of redemption. Right now we find ourselves in a trying situation. Many people are nervous and anxious about our current times that God has put us in. And for those of us who are trusting in God's redemption, we have hope and a message that we should be longing to get out there and tell to everyone. Whether that's us being physically six feet apart or over video chat like we are right now. We should long to go and tell of God's plan and work of redemption. So let us wonder, rest, and tell what God has done.
I'm going to close with the lyrics to one of my favorite songs. That's such a great reminder uh, in times of worry, um, anxiousness. They simply say this, that there is a redeemer. Jesus, God's own son, the perfect lamb of God, Messiah, the Holy One. Let us pray. <laughs> we thank you, oh, my Father, for giving us your Son and for leaving your Spirit with us until the work on earth is done. Lord, we thank you for your word and for this story of Ruth that gives us a glimpse of the gospel. Lord, I ask that you would work in our hearts here to further see our need, to see Jesus, our Redeemer, to trust in your plan and look to you alone for redemption. We thank you for the realities that you've blessed us with in this gospel. And I ask that you would make us into faithful witnesses of your reconciling work. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray today. Amen.